you can't worry about all of it. You can only worry about the next moment. You play that moment, and then you play that moment. Just concentrate on that, and then all the moments strung together will be like, you know, a string of pearls, and you'll, there'll be a necklace at the end of it, but all you ever have to worry about in conscious time is the thing that you're doing, and then the next moment will emerge. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to the first episode of Season 9. To kick things off, we have a very special guest and our first thespian to boot, Tom Hollander, who plays the infamous writer and 20th century cultural powerhouse, Truma Capote in the new TV series, Feud, Capote vs. the Swans, airing on FX here in the States. In the show, largely directed by the legendary Gus Van Sant and starring a true A-team of powerful women, including Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Demi Moore, Calista Flockhart, and Molly Ringwald, Capote vs. the Swans chronicles the downfall of the most powerful writer in America and gives viewers an inside peek into the lives of his fabulous friends, the so-called Swans and their upper-class existence of extreme privilege, glamour, and, of course, drama. More on that later. Tom Hollander was raised in Oxford to a pair of teachers and got his early start as a child actor. He starred in a BBC film at age 14, later attended Cambridge, and got his start in various theatre productions, which we'll speak about. Despite his long and illustrious career, I personally first laid eyes on him in the late 90s on the TV show Absolutely Fabulous where he played the somewhat slimy and chauvinistic Paolo, the doomed fiancé to the character Safi. And in the 20 years since, he's played a litany of fascinating roles our listeners would certainly be familiar with, such as Mr. Collins, another ill-fated suitor in Pride and Prejudice, the coldly calculating Cutler Beckett in the Pirates of the Caribbean film series, King George III in HBO's John Adams, and, who could forget, the murderous homosexual Quentin in the most recent season of The White Lotus. I caught up with Tom from his friend's apartment in New York to chat about his charmed upbringing in Oxford, the sex scene that caught everyone very much off guard in The White Lotus, why he thinks Gus Van Sant is every actor's dream director, and how he nailed the flaming, high-pitched accent and self-destructive nature of a literary icon. I've sort of wanted to, to sort of start uh, at, at the beginning, and, and from what I've read, you were raised mostly in Oxford, and both of your parents were teachers, which I guess to, to American ears is about as enchanting and fulfilling as, it, as, as humanly possible. I'm wondering if you could say, share with me some of your earliest memories growing up in Oxford. Oxford is a very wonderful town, and increasingly it feels like a little island of privilege and a sort of rarefied idyll where quite a lot of interesting, clever people have been drawn to these very old, beautiful buildings, the university, and where ideas take precedence over materialism. That was kind of the vibe, and I think that's what my parents wanted. My parents grew up in the west of England, in Devon, and then they lived as young newlyweds. They lived in Somerset. Somerset has now become incredibly fashionable. In fact, your listeners will be very aware of probably of Bruton, mm. which is where Hauser and Worth have ended up. Oh, yeah. Okay. But Bruton in 
the late 60s when my parents lived there was very, very sleepy, you know, smelt of farming. Mm. And uh, they were they were keen to get out of it, to go to what was much racier then, which would be Oxford. They never got all the way to London. London right. seemed a bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> and how? What, what was your first uh, nudge into acting? How did that start? There was at school. I was at a uh, the school in Oxford. I did a lot of singing. I did a lot of music when I was a kid. Uh, my father's father was a, a musicologist, and um, music. And my mother played the piano. And my mother. Uh, encouraged us both. My sister is still a musician. She's a she's a very accomplished singer, and she used to direct opera. and uh, She teaches singing and teaches piano to little kids. Um, uh, and I did a lot of music when I was young and at school. And I was the I was a chorister at school. And somebody needed to play Oliver in the school production of Oliver, and they the, someone said you should play Oliver. So that was my first acting was because I could sing, oh, really, okay. um, and I I had fun doing that. I enjoyed the attention. I think I was probably a bit of a show off. I think I was probably quite annoying. If I if I met my childhood self, I'd probably think, oh, he could he could do with dialing it down. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Oliver is a very uh, central you know character where it is kind of all all look at me and. Uh, you know, I just saw a production of it, and then it's it's kind of uh, you know, it's it's very central on a on a child actor for quite a large part of it. It sure is, yeah, yeah. I think it was. I think, and like many Olivers before me, I really wanted to play the artful dodger because he's uh, he's he's more he's the fun. cool kid. He's the cool one, exactly. And Oliver's rather sort of earnest. And then I did, you know, school plays, and then I ended up doing a school play and being scouted by the BBC and I did a TV show when I was 14 playing a sort of Oliver-like character another sort of Victorian cute kid who who was on a mission to in a Leon Garfield adaptation uh, sort of Dickin, Dickens for children sort of mm. tone and I was playing another earnest do-gooding little child um, which my an uncle died last year and his widow sent me um, a recording of that uh, which we watched uh, a DVD of it he'd, he'd actually transferred it to DVD and mm. um, my 14 year old self is there on the screen in a rather rather slow um, production little film Beep children there used to be quite a healthy children's television department in the BBC years ago which is gone now but um they had some budgets, and this was a, a little film. I was in it with... I got a term off school, and it all went to my head. I was with... I acted with David Rappaport, who who was a, a little uh, person um, who was the star of The Time Bandits, if anyone oh, gosh, remembers yeah. that film. And yeah. Time Bandits had just been on. Oh, wow. And then he was in it, and he... He met me before we started filming in Covent Garden and took me to a toy shop. He was so kind. Um, he was a psychologist. Uh, I mean, he'd done a psychology degree. And I think he wanted to make sure that the kid was going to be okay because the thing was sort of, I was going to be at the center of it. Anyway, he took me to a toy shop in Covent Garden. And he was smaller than I was, which obviously was, I found, quite... Um, 
astonishing because uh, I was small. The reason I got the part was because I was small. Mm. Um, when you're a kid, they want you to be they want you to be older than you look so that you can, you know, the maturity of the older child is useful for the production, but they want you <laughs> small because um, you look younger. Uh, but he was considerably smaller than I was. I was four foot 11. I can't remember what he was. And that whole, that whole term, I was, you know, I was given money. I was picked up by a car. I lived in a hotel. I got to live in this fictional world and I didn't have to go to school. It was dreamy. And the whole experience rather went to my head and I wanted to recreate the experience. So at that point I'd sort of, I was done really. I think my, my, any imagining of doing anything else in my adult life had, had uh, sort of gone because mm. my, my brain was fried by the adrenaline of, of filming that show. Did your parents have to uh, force you to kind of go to Cambridge and, and continue your studies? A little did bit. Want... They, didn't, they didn't force me. They very elegantly said. And also, I don't, I mean, we never got any, <laughs> we never got any other requests as far as I know. <laughs> I wasn't suddenly, um, I remember auditioning for uh, Steven Spielberg's Young Sherlock. Oh, um, wow. But I didn't get it. Oh. Uh, oh. Not to be Sherlock, to be Watson. Oh. Anyway, um, so I was trying to, you know, it was too, it was too heady for a, a little kid to, and I, I wanted to do it again. Um, and so I did, but mum and dad sensibly, yes, guided me, nudged me towards going to university and, and my contemporaries were going to university. My sister was going there. It seemed the natural move and you need a degree in case it doesn't work out and, and so on. Uh, and- and you remember a Footlights, which was sort of a revered sort of sketch comedy troupe. It's where uh, the Monty Python people came yeah. from. Yeah, that's why. Hugh Laurie, Eric Idle, they were all kind of... Uh, exactly. Uh, I mean, those are very different generations, but exactly. Hugh Laurie was, was a later generation. Sure. Hugh Laurie was also from Oxford. Uh, and, and he actually, I went to the same college as him at Cambridge. And then when we ended up doing the night manager together, we were, I got to know him properly i'd known him before we did a film called maybe baby in the early 90s which was not a not a huge hit but so i'd met him then anyway i he's always been he was a hero to me when we were at school and at university he's 15 years older or a decade older or something and um and then working with him was a huge thrill and did you enjoy the the sort of the comedic sort of skit aspect of it do you remember any skits from that time? i did not no bad ones busy buzzy little fly at my table you and i you me who eats my humble bridge you who likes the taste of sewage that was one joke <laughs> not not nothing ours was not a not a particularly notable <laughs> generation of footlights i was not a I wasn't a writer. I was a performer. My friend John, who's gone on to be a radio producer uh, in in the UK, he makes a cult radio comedy show and has done for thirty years. He wrote it all, uh, mm. and and a and a guy called Peter Bradshaw, who's now a Guardian film critic. Um, they they, they <laughs> yeah we were. We we had our moments, but we weren't. We were no footlights. Nor were we. Nor were we Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson. That lot. They were all. They were all brilliant. Utterly brilliant. <laughs> 
Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. As a design editor and magazine veteran for decades, I can remember keeping so many lists. Where to buy lighting, where to buy great furniture, rugs, accessories, pillows, vases, you name it. Just keeping track of where to get access to the best design houses online was a job unto itself. But today, homeowners and designers have access to Lumens.com, a source for more than 400 global brands, all in one place. What started as an insider's go-to source for lighting has emerged as an encyclopedic powerhouse of good design, celebrating its 20th anniversary, offering nearly everything an architect, designer, or aficionado could require, from iconic names like B&B Italia and Floss to Carl Hansen and Nani Marquina. If you know me, you know that I love a good period film. When it's done right, the sets, the costumes, the gentle pacing, it always makes for perfect binge viewing. Tom's new show, Feud, Capote vs. the Swans, is no different. While it might not take place during the French Revolution or Tsarist Russia, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, of course, are a goldmine of design inspiration. On Lumens.com, you might find ultra-fab day-drinking appropriate items like the shag-like Maltino rug from Linny Design, which you can find by using the shopping by menu and choosing Glam. Then you might pair that with something like the VL Ring Crown Chandelier from Louis Poulsen by choosing the mid-century modern option. With hundreds of brands, both big and small, to choose from, Lumens.com is really a first-click portal to find all of the elements for your glam, period moment project. Hairspray not included. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. Obviously, I, I, I would be, I would never forgive myself if I didn't ask you about uh, your uh, brief but memorable role in Absolutely Fabulous. Ab fab. <laughs> well done. Yeah, I yeah. Absolutely. A... I absolutely have to add. You play Sappy's fiance, who I yes. believe leaves her at the altar, I think, or for some, yes. for a model for the Gucci and, model. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Tell me. I'm just, you know. How does, how does one go from, uh, you know, a butterfly landing on your finger and, and doing uh, serious Shakespeare to uh, to something like that? And obviously you've done, you know, in the loop and all these like really kind of, you know, what can you tell me about your your time on the set of AbFab as I just. Well, like... it was that was that was that was uh, amazing. That was the matriarchy that people sometimes um fantasize when about when you know we're talking about re reorganizing society in a, in a progressive way that was a little microcosmic matriarchy mm. of these brilliant uh brilliant women jennifer saunders obviously joanna lumley jennifer writing all of it ruby wax there as well writing it um it's funny because i never thought about it that way i've never thought about it as a as a sort of a women led and created show i just oh, it absorbed it n normally as a, as a as a as a young gay fan who somehow yes hung on every word and can still like quote so many lines but yes because i was guess a, at the time it was, it was astonishingly it, good wasn't it yeah no but it was it was i mean i just remember it being i remember joanna lumley giving me a packet of cigarettes i was very very nervous because they were all, you know, they were kind of rock stars. It was huge at the time. And I, and this was supposedly the last ever episode. So I was incredibly anxious. It was He was quite a big part, Safi's boyfriend. But obviously it was a part that I had never played before and had never been in the show before. So you didn't really know if it worked. Whereas they had all been doing this for ages. And, and it was recorded live in front of a live audience. And I'd never done that before. 
the sort of hybrid of, of theatre and TV. I didn't know whether I was to act for the audience or whether I was to act for the camera. And I was not sleeping and I went to the doctor the day of the recording and said I need some I need something to control my nerves because I'm 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 not going to be able to act properly because there's a whole lot of stuff that you do as an actor well I always used to do especially in front of cameras which were actually a response to anxiety physical tics like I'd move my mouth in a particular way or I'd rub my eye inadvertently and it was all anxiety and I knew that that that's not you know that was not that was not a character that was there <laughs> that was me being nervous. So I wanted to try and remove that. And I went to the doctor and I said, "Can I have some beta blockers?" I'd heard about beta blockers, <laughs> and because um, beta blockers stop your heart racing, they stop the physiological r- reaction yeah. to to anxiety. And and the the doctor went, "No, of course not. I can't hand out beta blockers. They're a serious drug." Uh, why do you why do you need them? And I went, no, you don't understand. I'm on absolutely fabulous this evening. And he went, you are? <laughs> oh, my God. And pulled out a bit of paper and wrote me out a prescription then and there. Oh, wow. So off I went to the, to the pharmacy and I got the prescription and I took them sitting in my little dressing room. Do you think you could tell if you saw it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was much, much better. I was much, much better. And also... Paolo, I think he was called. Paolo was quite cool, you know. Paolo needed to be oh, laid God. back. Yeah. He couldn't be anxious. Paolo <laughs> was a, a, a Euro rich kid, wasn't he? He needed to be. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then I came, and that was my f- the, and it was on, and it, it was okay. I was okay. They were all very. Joanna Lumley was incredibly kind to me. Um, Jennifer was, I watched someone, you know, she was writing it, the pressure of writing all of it mm. and the pressure of making each episode as funny as the last one. That was, I, I, that's the first time I ever saw that, that these, you know, what that's like to be one of those creators, really tough. Um, and then after it had been on, I walked down the st- Oxford Street and some girls screamed, uh, they went, oh my God, there he is, Safi's boyfriend. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my first taste of uh, sort of the effect that TV has on people, that it goes, you know, when oh, TV gosh. pops, it goes straight into people's living rooms and it goes straight into their hearts. And and it happened in New York. I, I, I don't know, I can't remember what the year was, but I went to New York soon afterwards and... A couple of guys jumped out of a shop <laughs> when they saw me walk past uh, and said, you know, it's Paolo from AbFab. <laughs> so I know I know that AbFab had a very, very loyal, loyal wow. following in New York and clearly still does. So wow. thanks, Dan. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, and fast forwarding a little bit, uh, you know, one of the films that, of yours that, that's had this sort of incredible longevity is of course pride and prejudice um yes. where you work with director joe wright where yes. you worked with him again on hannah and, and other was another cult cult film yes um and you know for someone who who read at oxford did you have any sort of trepidations at the time about doing an adaptation and there was a show that was very successful and oh yes no i do i remember i remember distinctly remember saying another Pride and Prejudice? Do we really need another one after 
the the Colin Firth Jennifer Ely one had, mm. was in the not distant past, and um, I didn't understand what producers understand, uh, what Eric Fellner and Tim Bevan understand, what working title that you know every few years there is a new generation of people that will receive this story for the first time, and and so they did. So there are there are there's a whole generation of women who watched that that was their first one the the previous one the super whistle bbc one was i can't remember how many years before but long enough so so it sh- sh- yeah and also you know i wasn't gonna yes i thought why does anyone want to make this again but i wasn't going to turn down the part it was an amazing part and also what i also didn't understand was how brilliant joe was um i had i didn't and that became very clear when we started filming. That was that was a wonderful job. Since you, since since you were asking, that was a magical summer. All those women were emerging in that. Uh, oh yeah. You know, Kira obviously carrying it. Kira with all the pressure. Rosamund Pike was in there. Um. And Kira, did you Kerry work Mulligan. with her on, on, on uh, Pirates of the Caribbean? I did, exactly, yeah. soon afterwards, yeah, for a couple of years. Kerry Mulligan was in that Pride and Prejudice mm. with almost no lines. <laughs> um, Tallulah Riley was in that, who went on to marry Elon Musk twice. Uh, <laughs> um, there was Donald Sutherland, Brenda Blethyn. It was... It's quite it the was, cast. It was kind of amazing, yeah. And of course, there's a the, famous scene with you complimenting boil a uh, uh, yes, a, a this is terrine this is, of boiled potatoes. What a superbly featured room, and what excellent boiled potatoes! Many years since I've had such an exemplary vegetable. To which of my fair cousins should I compliment the excellence of the cooking? Mr. Collins, we are perfectly able to keep a cook. Excellent. I'm very pleased the estate can afford such a living. Which I don't. I don't know where that. I can't. People quote that at me, and I, I. Do they um, ser- try to serve you boiled potato? How, how for how many years after did someone say, at a restaurant? Oh, yeah, we have some. Nobody potatoes. said it in a restaurant. <laughs> I've, I've, <laughs> and I also didn't realize. I only realized how that line had popped. I don't even remember it. I don't if it, remember if it was in the script or if it was improvised. I barely remember saying it. And then I met Jennifer Lawrence. In someone's house, and I was too uh, starstruck to speak. And she said, "Oh, what marvelous boiled potatoes! <laughs> and uh, what wonderful boiled potatoes!" Whatever the line is, she said it to me, and I was thrilled that Jennifer Lawrence had—I uh, had somehow, you know, at some stage impinged on her consciousness as an actor. Um, but I also—that was news to me—that that line was a thing. Um, but it is a thing. Can you? Do you know why? It was just. It was just so awkward, right? It, it the whole thing. The whole scene is you trying to impress a family because you're trying to wed the daughter at some point. And, exactly. And, and, and you just, just. I just don't know how to behave. Yeah. He's poor yeah, chap. He's yeah. He he just doesn't know what to say. It, yeah. And uh, speaking about these roles where you're kind of playing a an unlikable person uh the the show and then the movie you know the thick of it which then became in the loop as a, a movie which also uh you it's sort of like the 
a bunch of British political operatives go to the United idiots. States. And, yes. uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And James Gandolfini is a general in it. And, yes. Uh, um, was something David like Rash. that. Yeah. How do you, um, how, is there, a, if an actor said like, gosh, I have to play a role of like the most miserable person, uh, how do you, is there any kind of, uh, what what advice or what, what kind of, what would you say about playing a role like that? To play, you mean to play a miserable person? To play a yeah, loser? Yeah, kind to of play someone who's, so, yeah, well, not even a loser, but some, someone who's not supposed to be super liked. Not oh. that sympathetic. Not evil um, necessarily, just like skin crawly, like the like the Reverend was in Pride and Prejudice or Pastor. Or well, was. the the, I mean, the, I don't have any particular advice uh, <laughs> other than that you you know with all these characters you have to find the you have to find the vulnerable human being in them. Uh, that's the way to make them interesting. You have to find the the relatable bit because we are all awkward, don't we? And we're all we all are quite capable of being the person that's making someone's skin crawl depending on the day we all have those moments so i think you want to try and make them as likable as possible but retain but without losing their without losing the thing that makes them the difficult character but you 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 try you want to try and sort of win win people over not not charm them but you need to let people into their predicament so that they feel compassion for them. Um, but before uh, we, we speak about feud, I wanted to, of course, I have to just like have them. I have to bring up White Lotus. Oh, yeah, and, of course. And, and uh, you know, um, were you able to read all of the scripts before you were uh, no. offered the role or anything? Like, because obviously, spoiler no, alert, read- there's a huge twist uh, uh, towards the end of the and sh- uh, for the end of that series. Um, and how did that come about and how you well, kind of... Which twist do you mean? Do you mean the the reveal of of uh, the reveal, the death, the murder, the everything? I mean, you know, well, we, I think it's been out for a while. I think everyone who I don't think we should worry about that, the spoilers so much. Yeah, I yeah. think everyone before uh, we find out that you're, um, you know, uh, the, the, you're, you're banging your, your to, nephew. <laughs> I read up to the uh, well, my nephew's banging me. Yeah, the, the, correct. The, I read up to that point. I was okay. given the scripts up to that. Point oh, and okay. uh, and so I was I was done. I read you that. Knew you thought, were... okay, well I'm doing this. Yeah, <laughs> really. Um, and then, but then I and then of course there was the anxiety about <laughs> is it going to does the part continue to be as good as this? But it had to be. You couldn't. It couldn't. You couldn't have that reveal without going deeper. Okay, so you um, didn't know. You didn't know about the final. I didn't know, know for sure what was going to happen yeah. in episode six and seven. I think there were seven episodes of that. Um, but Mike White assured me, and I, I had a I had a Zoom with him, and he he seemed like such a lovely man, and such a also such a brilliant serious man that I I believed him. I thought he's not messing around. He's uh, he's he's writing this. Uh, he's <laughs> I have in the past said things yes to things where they've gone where you they you you do it on the expectation that the bit that they haven't written is as good as the bit that you've read or they say it's not that big in this in this film but it's going to get much bigger in the next one and then and then uh and it doesn't i have had that experience but with this um uh i believed him and also i was such a huge fan of season one that i i i was couldn't believe my luck that they were offering me this part 
and of course, like one of the great things about it is that it, for from like an American point of view, is that it has a a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it doesn't try to like go on or on. You know, as you no, say, no. there's no sequel element to it. No, which I think you you would get a lot more often with British uh, TV that you would with an American one, where there's always the the sort of the uh, the impulse to try to become a syndicated to stretch show it out. and to stretch it out into seven seasons, um, and and. And you you sort of became uh, the poster child for the evil gay. For uh, these these gays are trying to kill me. You're you're the evil gay. I know. Well, <laughs> it's it's a uh, it's yeah, it's funny. Did people react to you at all after that? After uh, all of I, that, I I didn't. Not really, because I was when it came out. I was so deep in feud in Capote there was no time I, I didn't go to the premiere of of White Lotus I wasn't part of any of the publicity I didn't go to the SAG Awards I was I was shooting 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 we would we were in doing Capote and the Swans and I was in all of it and there was no time so actually I missed this and also I looked completely different so when I was walking down the street I, I people weren't really recognizing me from it now, now they are, but the sort of white heat of it just coming out and suddenly everybody dancing to the theme tune in clubs, that's, that's gone. But I, my friends were sending me, my friend Hannah sent me a little film. She was in a club about, about a week after the first thing dropped and they were, somebody had already done a house version of the, the, <laughs> the theme tune. And I thought, wow, that's a hit. Blimey. And you know when you mentioned that you know obviously the the the, the shocking scene of of you getting uh, uh uh what's the right way to say this um sodomized say sodomized yeah <laughs> that's very accurate sodomized by your nephew why what made you as an actor like want to do like, that yeah let's do that because because it's so unusual mm. uh I mean the first the first reaction is um. Oh, I'm not, not normally, normally, you know, normally people want to play, they want to be the active one. Right. They want to be the person screwing the person. Right. The top, as we would say. On top. Right. Just, yeah. Um, yeah. Pitching, not catching. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I thought, no, you're catching. That is so much more interesting. <laughs> and, and do it uh yeah you 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 don't get asked to represent that the cliched shot of you know somebody bearing down on someone else and looking all powerful and you know who cares do yeah. do do this is human experience this is real human experience that at least 50% of the people having sex <laughs> are, are <laughs> in, in, enjoying. So represent that. And also, this is aspirational sex. This is, uh, this is representing this, this uh, configuration in the most glamorous setting. <laughs> this is wonderful stuff. Um, so, you know, this is progressive, I thought. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'll, I'm, I'm it. Let, let, let me at him. <laughs> Do you look around your home and wonder where am I going to put everything? The Grand Tourist certainly does. My collection of lucky Japanese cats, 
my four dozen brooches of varying levels of flair, not to mention my extensive collection of vintage magazines and other baubles collected from a lifetime of little grand tours around the world. If you find yourself in such a dilemma, California Closets can help. Their design experts will collaborate with you to create a custom storage solution based on your needs, your aesthetic, and your budget. So whether you're looking for a harder working closet, storage room for your collectibles, or a multi-purpose studio, California Closets know how to make room for what belongs. Plus, it's easy to get started. First, you schedule a free design consultation, and their designer will talk with you about your needs, measure your space, and create a 3D rendering that shows you the best ways to optimize functionality. They'll work with you to refine the design until it's exactly what you want, and after building it, they'll install it with their own team of professionals. After all, the Grand Tourist knows many things, but how to use a hammer and nail, not exactly. Think of it as practical magic, a series of spells even a podcaster with 20 years of experience could never cast on his own. Learn more at californiaclosets.com. In Feud, Capote versus the Swans, Tom plays Truman Capote, one of the most celebrated and polarizing American literary figures of the 20th century. The openly gay Capote rocketed to fame with short stories like Breakfast at Tiffany's, which later became the film we all know, and the book In Cold Blood, published in 1966, which pioneered the concept of a journalistic nonfiction novel based on the true story of a grisly murder in Kansas. Capote sold his story as true, and it was, but it also fabricated much. And his predilection for the hazy territory between fact and fiction, secrets and lies, is what ultimately led him to tragedy. Feud focuses on Capote's epic falling out with his swans, a gaggle of ultra-glamorous women from New York's upper crusts of society. Capote used these close relationships to create a tell-all novel that went unfinished, called Answered Prayers. When Capote struggled to finish the novel during his bouts with alcohol and substance abuse, he published a few chapters in Esquire magazine in 1975. In the articles, he spills all the tea, betraying his ultra-private friends, and thus his epic feud with the most powerful families of the day began. Capote aside, the series beautifully captures the lives, not to mention the wardrobes and lifestyles, of society legends like Lee Radziwill, sister to Jackie Kennedy, style icon CZ Guest, and of course, Babe Paley, married to the founder of CBS, William Paley. Simply put, these impeccable women make Martha Stewart look like a slouch. For Tom, the role must have been a very tall mountain to climb, both physically and mentally. But it's also something of a dream role. Fabulous settings, cutting dialogue, plenty of salacious behavior, and lots and lots of inebriated naughtiness. I wanted to ask Tom about his work with Gus Van Sant, the stellar cast playing his various muses, and how he approached the rare portrayal of physical abuse in a gay relationship. And, and now with you, you're, you're, you're taking on another, uh, more or less an evil gay, especially in the show and how he's portrayed. How did this, uh, how did feud come about and, and Capote come about? Well, he's not an evil gay. Um, it's it, close. He's, he's not evil. It's a, well, I mean, I can't see it like that. It's not, he, 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 um, you know, Quentin, I mean, the evil, the evil gay thing was, you know, that's a, it's a satire of, sure, and, of and also I know that Mike White wanted to, was trying to make a point because he, he got some stick for season one, the gay character being the victim, being sacrificed. Ah, um, okay. And so he went, okay, 
well, as a gay man, I'm going to write, I'm going to write them as the villains then. Mm. And they're going to be, they're going to be having the most fabulous life. <laughs> and they're going to, they're going to kill her. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, and also, were they killing her? Yeah, they probably were, but they never really killed her. And, but the Truman Capote story is, is, uh, I was playing, I was well, I was at the center of it. I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I was at the emotional center of it. Mm. And Truman Capote was a very difficult man, but he's not evil. Mm. Um, Quentin is sufficiently, in White Lotus, is sufficiently superficially drawn, I suppose, to, 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 to be able to say, yeah, he's one of the evil gays. But he's, you know, Quentin's a kind of shallow guy. Um, Quentin's a rich kid who doesn't have to work, who's just sort of living, living, he's a sybarite or whatever the, the word right. is, a hedonist. Truman Capote wasn't a hedonist. He was a deeply, deeply troubled, brilliant man who was unloved as a child and, and at, was at some level despised himself and it was very difficult being him um and he wore an amazing armor and he was a warrior uh living like that being having that personality that physical life um i mean the way he moved the, the, how extraordinary he was how out he was at mm -hmm. a time when it you couldn't be out without suffering consequences and, you know, there's a famous story of Norman Mailer taking him into a bar of stevedores or something and, and thinking that they were going to get the shit kicked out of them. And Truman just sort of swanned in and threw his scarf around his shoulder and, and lauded it, put his shoulders back and was magnificent. But you can see in the interviews, the Dick Cavett stuff, the, I watched them again and again and again. And you can see he sometimes closes his eyes because he wants to uh he, he he closes his eyes he looks up a lot he looks away he's he's avoiding uh being where he is all the time and and he was abused horribly at school he went to a boarding school and was was kind of passed around i think um uh he was abandoned by his mother he you know, he, he, no one was helping Truman Capote. He had to fight for everything he had. And there was a big, obviously, there was a big addictive void in his, in the middle of him, which he was filling up with booze and pills or high society ladies or all sorts of things he shouldn't have been doing. He shouldn't have been doing the booze and he shouldn't have been doing the high society ladies, in my opinion. He mm. should have been, he should have been at his desk. Um, because his his way to escape himself was art was work and and he was clearly he could be a mean motherfucker but um he 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 was he and he was a liar and but he wasn't he wasn't a liar he was i mean he was he lied but he was a he was form more formally he was a fictionalist hmm. that that was his job that was uh his contribution to the world was to make up stories and he made up some incredibly beautiful stories about which are astonishingly eloquent about what it is 
to be alive, the human condition, the human spirit, the human heart. He was intensely conscious of what it was and wrote about it better than almost everyone. But he was also capable of writing horribly. Mm. Uh, and he did that in answered prayers in the Cote Basque. And he wrote mean stuff. And he let himself down. <laughs> um, and and uh, did, I'm curious, like when you were considering the role, did you watch the the Philip Seymour Hoffman's version of Capote, which is kind of like a prequel almost in a way before he's super famous, what he's doing in Cold Blood and the, the, the movie's completely about that. I, of course, I watched Philip Seymour Hoffman and I was relieved to, to see whether there was anything left for another actor to play. And I was relieved to see that there was because he's playing Truman at a very specific time and at a much more sober time and, and at mm. uh, on his way up, basically, at his most disciplined um, when he's writing in Cold Blood. And Ryan Murphy's story was obviously the latter half of his life, what happened later. Um and also the writing is tonally just completely different. Mm. Robbie Bates was was it's it's a, it's altogether different in style and feeling. Well, you'll know this better than me because you've seen it. How many episodes have you seen? Four. Four. Okay. So and it, it it goes. Have you seen is Have you seen the episode with James Baldwin? No, I think that's I episode six. I think, I think that's yeah. You one. haven't got to that yet. So that there are. There are, well, you've already seen within the first four that, that, that it, it goes wildly different. There are different genres in different episodes. Yeah. You see there's a mockumentary in episode three and it's all in black and white. And it revisits the same events again and again and again. Um, not in a Rochemont structure, but, but just a different genre of filmmaking in an episodical season of television, which is just astonishingly confident and brilliant of Ryan and Robbie and Gus they just they just threw everything at, at this show um in this what about, sort of if I could ask like what about the, the voice obviously is such a big part of it and obviously yes. it must be petrifying to do because it's so accurate to what he really sounded like but also it's so over the top if you just met somebody and they started speaking like that it would it's it is the most kind of over the topness if you, if it was a created character someone might be like oh that's a, yes no that's you a can, bit much you, but he was real like that what he really he did sound like yeah tell yeah. me about that well so that that's obviously the challenge of it um and it's difficult and uh but but i was i had wonderful help um, from Jerome Butler, who's the most wonderful voice coach, and he helped me nail it specifically to get the the individual vowel sounds correct and uh, and the tonality of it. Um, and it, we never stopped working at it. Uh, I, I was listening to him every take on my phone. I would listen to him before we started every day in the car on the way to work. I would get my mouth around it. 
and it went from being a challenge it went from being a very difficult sort of stiffening awkward challenge where I couldn't really become a human being because I was trying to do the voice and the movement to eventually it ends up in your muscles in the same way that if you were learning a dance move you'd be all awkward and all uh, all big toes and then eventually you don't even have to think about it and it it became like that and then then you start to fly then you feel all the joy of being an actor and escaping yourself in in into a different part and suddenly you feel into a character and you feel weightless you it's as close as you can get to sort of flying um because you're not you're not you you're this person and you can do things as this person that you can't do as yourself you feel a sort of superpower because you're you've escaped um into Truman Capote was there an accent was there uh were you try an accent yeah for him his sort of particular dialect or the way he where he was from was that part of it oh actually well, I don't remember I think his voice is a is a strange combination of Monroeville Alabama where he grew up but also Greenwich Connecticut where he was as a teenager so there some of the sounds are from up there and some of the sounds are from down there uh so uh, it's quite specific it's you know he's sort of southern and sort of fancy but i mean i think you know he he was very he said i'm a woman at some at a couple of times he bought, basically said i'm female and and so it's it's a it's a high voice it's the voice of a of a of a girl in a way he was such a lonely man I, 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 so this, you know, he's not, I know he's a dislikable in some ways, but he's not, he's not, you know, there is no such thing as, I mean, I do, I was going to say there's no such thing as evil. I, I, I think very few people are evil. There is such a thing as evil as an abstract thing. I would say that if there was evil in the world, you know, you might say what Vladimir Putin is doing is evil. That is evil. But if you were playing Vladimir Putin, or even if you were a if you were a serious historian, you would say, "Well, Vladimir Putin thinks he's restoring the Russian Empire, and the body count is not evil. The body count is the natural consequence of a country having to fight for its existence." You know, you get you get into actors have to get quite good at uh, seeing relative truth different empathizing with all the infinite different perspectives there are on on a single event mm. so you, you you know so that if you're if you end up playing somewhat hitler you 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 empathize for hitler <laughs> you see because to play him well like bruno gantz did you have to you have to be inside him and think of him as a human being um who has real needs and is 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 understandable and and one of the central themes in, in Feud uh, is the sort of special relationships forged between a, a gay man and a straight woman. Uh, yes. And in this case, it's one gay guy and half a dozen women. Um, and it's kind of, it's portrayed, I, I, I feel, kind of in a, in a way I haven't really seen before uh, in a really wonderful way, in a very raw way. Um, it's a kind of intimacy uh, that's where sex is not part of it. Yes, but there's there's a there's still that it's male female aspect, and there's still a love story. Yeah, how did you think about that when you were doing these scenes uh, with all these various the hit the swans? Well, it's most intense with Naomi, isn't it? Sure, because that's the love story, really. That 
um, that's the intense love story, and that's the heartbreaking love story. As and when you get to the end, you'll you'll you, that that becomes more and more clear. Um, obviously, he's very close to CZ Guest as well, uh, played by Chloe Sevigny. Um, but that's a different sort of platonic fondness, and she never abandoned him, but he never attacked her mm. in the same way, so she didn't have so much to to forgive. Um, but uh, actually, Naomi helped with that. It, 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 Naomi was so conscious of the need for us to be that close that she was incredibly open to me right from the start before we long before we started filming she said come over to my house let's get to know each other we knew each other a tiny bit before we'd met before but but she she was very very sweet um and so it became very natural um the way we had to behave i was spending 90 percent of my energy trying to perfect the voice and the movement and trying to work out how to pretend to be him naomi was much more uh, was much more conscious of the need for uh, for for us to to become close, and I followed her lead, uh, and I understood. I learned it from her. So those scenes in her dressing room where we're playing, that was all wonderful. It's it, she, it's but it. she she was leading them. She was brilliant. She was utterly brilliant. She's she's so she like your role. She kind of transforms. She into does this transform character. completely, and she transforms to a character that we don't really know. I mean, we know it's not Naomi Watts, but we don't really know who Babe Haley was or sounded like because she's only in photographs. There's no footage of her, and there's almost nothing to listen to. Oh gosh. Um. So 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 Naomi had to construct that. And you know, addiction is obviously a, a major part of the plot. Yes, massive. And, yeah, and his his alcoholism is, is legendary, and you can go online and just type in Chumakapoti drunk, and you'll get videos yeah. of him. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I think there was that the the film the seagull it, one. The, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also kind of a super rare instance of a man being physically abused by. A boyfriend, yes, you don't right? see that, do you? Never, no. never. Um, no. And, and that's and, shocking. Uh, yeah, and you know that seems like a really high hoop to jump through for uh, for a man for a, just something that you maybe never thought about of kind of like how to react and how did you sort of prepare for those scenes because uh, he has a Capote has a has a boyfriend who's a little bit of a a loose cannon and 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 does beat him basically. Yes, well. I I didn't prepare for them other than I knew we were going to have to do that that day and uh I you just do it you just you just um Russell Tovey uh hit me and I I behaved as if I'd been hit hmm. um I mean if that's not too banal an answer. However, I had seen, I suppose more interestingly, you could see that Truman didn't, at some level, didn't mind being hit. Hmm. If that's not too shocking a thing to say. At some level, he he provokes, I mean, he provokes him, doesn't he? On right. both he, occasions, he, he, he twists his words. He abuses him verbally. Truman ab- abuses him verbally uh, until he hits him. And, and, and and Russell plays a kind of a quasi-closeted... Um, yeah. 
he was says that he's bisexual, but also sexual, sexually compulsive. And, yeah, and, and he's okay. married, and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a dark, and they meet in a, a bathhouse. It's a, it's a very, very dark relationship. And he was also a drunk. You know, they are at some level just two drunks. So, but I played. I I wanted to play that Truman kind of enjoyed the fact that he'd made him hit him. Maybe uh, he feels in some deep, dark way that he deserves it. Um, but he's also tough, so he doesn't whine about it. He takes it. Mm. Uh, I I knew that... I And you could see... You can see in some of the interviews, he's missing teeth oh, towards the end. Um... And uh, and he's kind of defiant about that. He's a little, you know, he's a little street fighter, Truman, as well. Yeah. Uh, he's incredibly sort of courageous. And also he's drunk. So he <laughs> probably doesn't feel it as much as, you know. I mean, it's all, it's really... I haven't seen those scenes, but I remember when we did them, they were very disturbing to do. I do remember. So when you say, how did you prepare for them? I didn't really. I... I there's no preparation to be done other than to make sure that you 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 know what scene's coming. But after we did them, I felt the darkness of them. You felt the darkness of them in in, in the moment. And, and mm. yeah, and, and sex is a big part of the show. And there is a kind of a dark, you know, there is a darkness as you mentioned. And obviously, Gus Van Sant uh, directed most of the episodes. Yes, was he was he attached when you took it on, or was that oh, a yes. surprise after? Afterwards? Oh no, no, no! I mean, uh, it was unbelievable. I'm going to be working with Gus Van Sant. Gus Van Sant. <laughs> Gus Van Sant's directing it. What was what was his what was his uh, his sort of direction to you, or what your conversations with him like when you were he's starting a, this? Because... Well, he's like the greatest of directors. He doesn't really say anything he lets you uh, discover it and he watches and watches and watches and makes decisions about how to shoot it and where to put the camera mm. and th that I'm putting it very simply but that that's that's the art of it he would create shots where the camera would form its own narrative of the scene and we'd say, he'd say, do you want to rehearse? And we'd say, yes. And he'd say, okay, action. So we'd then play the scene and we'd kind of block it ourselves. Occasionally he'd say it's better on that side of the room because we need, you know, for whatever, because of the light or because... But then he would, he and Jason, his DOP, who's also brilliant, and they worked very, very closely together, they would watch us do the scene they were often long literary scenes you see that they don't they're not lots of cuts in it they don't um i mean what i've seen i've only seen but i remember them shooting it we never went wide shot mid shot close up over the shoulder wide shot mid shot we didn't do that really we did they would put the camera on a crane and they'd put it uh somewhere they'd locate it somewhere in the room and then they'd spin around the room following us and we'd play those long scenes as long scenes He'd particularly in the coat basque. There are scenes where he doesn't. He's not on the. The camera is not on the person that's speaking. The camera is on someone else. Mm. So there was there was deep thinking or instinct from him about how to portray 
the atmosphere of a, a given scene. And sometimes in the coat basket, it's about the world. It's about the, it's about the world that's in there. It's about the other people listening. He's an artist. He's a painter as well. So he is sometimes like a man looking at a canvas, you know, and thinking what bit is he interested in. But he trusts you to, to play the scene, um, the actors to play the scene, and I loved I loved working with him. And I, I will say, as my last question, I'd love to play a little uh, uh, word association with this incredible cast of Swans. Oh yeah, and I'll tell you the name of the actress, and oh, you give me a one word. Um, the first description. word that comes to okay. description that comes to your mind. Okay. Um, we'll start with uh, Naomi Watts. Kind. Diane Lane. Feisty. Feisty. Chloe Sevigny. Smart. Callista Flockhart. Mysterious. Demi Moore. Wise. Uh, we'll throw in Russell Tovey. He's not a swan, but close. Um, magnificent. <laughs> uh, yeah. Funny as fuck. Am I allowed three words? Yeah. Sure. Funny as fuck is the great... <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great way to, to end the interview. <laughs> Thank you to our guest, Tom Hollander, as well as to Ben Barna and everyone at IDPR and FX for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram, at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. 